Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, hi, hello, and welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast, the show that brings you the best of the best feminist content. I'm your host, Neba from Notes by Neba, and today we are going to talk about Katie Beaton's new book, Ducks. Welcome to the show, Katie. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. Hi. So a little quick thing about the book. After university, it's about kind of your life, the couple years afterwards when you're paying off your loans. Um, You leave your family behind to join Alberta's oil rush, but as one of the very few women among thousands of men. There's a lot of culture shock. There's a lot of like harsh reality. Trauma is just almost an everyday occurrence, yet never discussed. As such, this book does include a trigger warning for sexual content. But um, Katie, I'm kind of curious how you even begun began this idea of taking your life and turning it into this graphic novel. I think that uh, as a cartoonist, it's a natural exercise to go back and especially for the most formative and extreme parts of your life to uh to go over them and um sort of tumble them in your mind like a little rock tumbler and uh it's it's cathartic to separate those events into panels almost and i I was doing it without even thinking about it for a long time i think when i when i would think about those memories that um stayed with me and I, I guess, had this book in mind long before it ever became a book, long before I even thought, like, I think I'm going to make this a book because I was making Harka Vagrant for years and I didn't have a long-term plan for what I was going to do in comics. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to do Harka Vagrant for X amount of years and then I'm going to do something else. I was just doing what I was doing. But in the back of my mind, when I would think about this time, which always sort of haunted me in a certain way, I would think of it in panels, because I think that's what cartoonists do sometimes. Certainly. I'm curious about kind of the the cartoonist process as opposed to like the like just pure text or like pure writing. Do you write out what you're going to have or do you sketch it out? What does that look like for you? Well, I wrote it as a script first, uh, and that took a year. It's a a memoir. So I I went through all of my old emails and all of my old drawings from that time and all of my old G chats. One of the nice things about living in this age is that we have such an uh, amazing footprint of that time. Then that was right on the cusp of like everything being just like extremely digitized from from 2005 when I have kind of a sparse amount of things to 2008 where I just have loads of things. This is when that, that time is, is um, recording. Uh, and I wrote it as a, as a script on final draft, the, the movie script software. And then, uh, and then I took those things and sort of rewrote them as, as panels on pages, uh, page by page. And so that was like how, I rewrote it because you always hear that writing is like rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So um, it got honed over and over as, as it made its way from writing from script to, to panel and then uh, honed again when it was time to draw it on the page. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of different rewriting types of rewriting is when you, when you draw it on the page, it's rewritten again as it, as it kind of like is put into 
uh, drawings with the, combined with words. visuals. Visuals, yeah. yeah, certainly. I make a lot of videos, so I kind of get what you mean with yeah. the, the script to video uh, or the script to visual rather change. Yeah, as I guess, like as a as a memoir, um, you're pulling from your own life and your own experiences. So, how do you kind of figure out where? to set up, you know, like little plot points or the climax of the story or resolution, because, you know, the resolution is you're still, you're still living, you're still doing things. There's lots of plots that have happened in your life before and after this. Um, So how does this uh, kind of get organized? Right. Well, I did wanted to read like as much like literature as it could, because I wanted it to have themes and to have arcs and, and for, for storylines to be apparent because otherwise I, I didn't want people to read it and be like, this is very muddled and this, I can't follow this or to get bogged down in the middle or in the end or wherever you want people to be engaged and you want them to, to feel the emotional arcs that, that you do reading any other kind of book. So I had help with editors in doing that. And, um, and from just my own interest in literature, what you, what you pick up from reading other books, <laughs> <laughs> and wanted yeah. to, to kind of mimic that, but it's your own life. You can't make up anything. And that was helpful in a lot of ways because I don't know how good I am as a, as a fiction literature writer, but I, I do know my own life very well and being limited to that and not being able to make anything up, but only, only being able to draw from what I had you know, this is your toolbox and that's all you get, um, was actually uh, freeing in a way because it, it made that, that jump from Harka Vagrant to, to something new, a bit less of a, you know, vast one that, that this is, yeah. this is what you have to work with. And it's not, it's not as endless as, uh, as it could be. Yeah, I could see how like having set experiences would help kind of narrow down the number of things to talk about and yeah. how you talk about them because certain of a, a certain part, portion of it is just chronological too. Yeah, and of course you're an expert in it because it's your own experience and you've thought about it so much, or at least I had in this case. And then Drone and Quarterly had editors and a and a team of people who were so proficient at putting books together and putting excellent books together. And when I I wanted to be collaborative in making it because this wasn't in my wheelhouse. And I, I knew that I needed help in, in making decisions because when it's something is so close to you and you're like, this means a lot to me. This is my story. This is very personal. You know that you can't always see what's best for the book. And, uh, you know, I need this to be in there. And they're like, we need to cut this. And you're like, no, I love this part, this page. And they're like, we need to cut this page. And you're like, <laughs> you know, you have, you, you get that email and then you have your little inside tantrum for a day. And then the next day you're like, all right, we can cut it. <laughs> now, now I gotta, I gotta ask what, what got cut? What got cut from the book? Oh, a lot of, a lot of things that, that they thought were, you know, this is too repetitive. You know, you've already said this in this way. And now you said it again, they gave the book to advanced readers who gave their impressions and they were like, you know what? There's a lot of sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> and we get it. Like, we really get it. There's, uh, I'm really bummed. 
Well, because there is, right? There like, that is. was a big I part know, of what happened my... all the time, every day. Yeah, that was my reaction. I was like, you're bummed. <laughs> <laughs> I was bummed. I was bummed when I was there and I was getting it every day. Listen, you... <laughs> But then you have to, you have to like respect the fact that uh, as the reader, they're like, we understand. (laughs) We understand the point that you made when you put it there the first few times, like you don't need to keep uh, beating that dead horse because the book is like 500 pages and we needed to trim it down. And then there were other, other things that were just sort of super, superfluous uh, that, that didn't, you know, threads that didn't go uh, anywhere in particular, uh, or things that I wanted to include that I just couldn't, uh, for instance, um, it's not in the book, but my youngest sister was there for a few months and, uh, she worked with, with us, but in order to include that story, I would have had to write pages where we talked to her about coming, where she arrived, where I gave her a whole arc of, uh, of working there just to give her a few months of working experience in the book. And that would have added like 50 more pages. And uh, even though that was very important to me, they're like, you already have a sister working in the book and, and it, you know, your love of your family shines through. And I just don't think that this like tacking this extra thing on would, uh, you know, adds, adds value to it because the reader gets it already. And I, I had to, I had to sort of acquiesce to that because it matters to my story, but to the book, you have to be like, okay, um, you know, if I, if I retreaded that, you know, here's my relationship with, with my youngest sister. And it happens right towards the end. The reader would be like, wait a minute, another, like <laughs> another sister, another sister, the whole family's coming over here. We're going over this again. Like, and I was just about to leave, you know, it's, it's um, some of the things that, that happen in your life. They just don't, they don't make it. And that that's hard to, hard to take. Yeah, I can imagine that's got to be uh, extra, like kind of personal because it is your your personal story. Yeah, and I felt bad for her. I had to, I had to be like, "You're not in the book." <laughs> that's <sucks. laughs> that that sucks. Yeah, I later I want to touch on kind of like what your friends and family's reaction was to this mm-hmm. book since it is a very personal story, but. You know, this uh, experience you had working in the oil sand or the oil sands of uh, Alberta many years ago. I'm curious if you've kind of followed the news about it and if you can give our listeners a little glimpse into what sort of the, the status of Canada oil is now. Gosh, that's a huge question. Well, the Canadian oil sands are a, a large economic driver in Canada. They, they're bitumen very it's not like texas oil which like is like you drill in and it like spurts out of the of the ground uh it's it's embedded in the sand which is why it's called the oil sands and you have to separate it from the sand because it's kind of like it's kind of like imagine like oily sand Right. It's a mixture instead of just being like just one substance. Yeah. So you have to chemically separate it. So it's, it's more uh, industry heavy to remove the oil from the, from the earth in that sense. So, so there's not just pulling the, the bitumen out, there's the separation process, which is why it comes under fire internationally, but because it, it's more energy heavy 
to get it. But it's a gigantic reserve at the same time. So it's a, the oil sands are a huge oil reserve. So there are, are many companies up there, Syncrude, Suncor, Shell, uh, uh, OptiNexon was there when I was there, uh, China something, I forget the name. Uh, anyway, just tons, tons of them. And all around this, this t- tiny, relatively tiny city of Fort McMurray, which is also all surrounding uh, several indigenous uh, populations very close to those lands so it's a it's a there's a lot going on politically environmentally um there's a lot of cultural things going on there is a lot of people who fly in and fly out they don't belong to the they don't belong to the official population of Fort McMurray they live in the camps outside of the city and they make up like a good percentage of the unofficial population. They're called the shadow population. I was part of that. I lived in the town and I lived in the camps, but they put a burden on the city when it comes to using services like the hospital. So there is a fraught relationship between the, the city and the camps because of the good and the bad that comes with that, the money, but then the the antagonism in a way, you know, they bring money in, but they also create problems. There are the issues that come in a boom and a bust place. There is the the jobs, the hope that people bring with them. With this money, you have young families, you have lots of immigrants, you have lots of people coming thinking that they're going to bring a better life for themselves, but you also have a lot of drug use. You have uh, people who exploit sex workers. You have people who bring violence with them in different forms. You have uh, violence against uh, indigenous women and girls. You have, uh, you have the things that happen against the environment and the lax protocols that are being enforced when it comes to protecting the environment versus making the money around oil. And anyway, it's a lot. It's a lot. And when I was there in 2005 to 2008, it was booming. And it was in a time before there was a a really large international conversation about the oil sands or even a national one because the internet was not really at the point where we were all talking to each other the way that we are now. It was just before beginning ages. Yeah. Yeah. It was just before then. And we were still pretty insular. The book is called ducks because when I was there in 2008, 1500 ducks flew into a tailings pond at Syncrude, which is a place where I did work once. Uh, they were migrating and they mistook it for a place to land, but a tailings pond is a is a oil refinery sort of deposit pond. So it was full of shit and they all got stuck in garbage and drowned. And it became an international incident that everyone 
became aware of it was in the New York Times and things like that. And it was one of the first times I knew that that like the world's eye turned to Fort McMurray and the oil sands and was like, what's going on up there? Looks bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's one of the the themes that's like throughout the book is this concept of like a lot of what's uh, poorly managed and the result of these kinds of environments is the result of like capitalism and these companies and mm-hmm. the way that the companies sort of treat the workers and treat different issues within the workplace yeah rather than being the fault of just the workers who are there and we do this all the time with environmental issues where we put the blame on individual people like oh take shorter showers and then we don't look at like you know nestle just like owning all the water and stuff like that yeah totally we weren't supposed to drink the water you know there's signs everywhere non-potable anyways <laughs> but like uh it was uh and that became like the ducks became this huge focal point but for years you know indigenous people around there were like we have rare cancers and nobody was like oh <laughs> nobody was paying a connection there yeah yeah like our children are being born with asthma that they didn't have before and we we live right underneath the like the oil company but like the ducks flew into the the tailings pond and everyone's like what's happening there and so like there was there was almost like a devaluation of like the human life and the human cost around things and and that's what it felt like on the ground because uh i also like i lived there when it was like the worst year for highway deaths on the highway between fort mcmurray and the edmonton the highway 63 was the uh, they called it the highway of death and they were people were trying to get a twin between the oil sites and town and uh and like it seemed like every week there was a new death on the highway because people would just drive recklessly on it they would work these crazy hours and then they would drive overtired and and so anxious to get home um and it was a really dangerous highway and it's not in the book but i nearly died on that highway <laughs> oh my gosh were you driving as well I was yeah I was in a truck uh like a company truck and a gigantic truck went by me and sort of pushed the truck that I was driving off to the side and it hit like a thing of snow and I lost control of it and it did a u-turn because I couldn't control it you couldn't control the car it was on like a, it was on like the ice and, uh, but I was just lucky that there were no cars coming behind me because it was in the middle of the day and nobody like T-boned me. But if it was a different time of day, because usually that highway was just like slammed with traffic, I would a hundred percent been hit. But I remember like I gained control and I was facing backwards on the other side of the road, just hyperventilating because so many people had died on that highway already that year so it was just the luck of like no other cars being there that was helpful for yeah you. just like just like watching like a, another car approaching and it just drove by me <laughs> wow and uh, everyone in there was so was so used to it my god yeah we I, you would drive by you would drive by a car in the ditch all the time and then you would drive by like other cars in the ditch who had rubbernecked and then fallen into ditch <laughs> oh what a shame it was such a common super common site and they did twin it later on but there's still a site that you can visit some highway 63 site that people put up 
that simulated driving up it and like seeing all of the like crosses for people who died on highway 63 anyway it was a dangerous place to live for people and but like the ducks were like this like red flag internationally so that that's that stuck out enough for it to be the title of the book interesting so kind of like looking at all of these like very traumatic experiences and like near-death experiences that you had what was the the reaction of like your friends and family to just sort of the the trauma that you and your sisters experienced while working there I don't know that we talked about that stuff but I mean my family I had a lot of relatives who worked there I have relatives who but like there's a cousin in the book who only stopped working there like last year his name is Angus he's he shows up in the book like a third of the way through or something but he worked there until like last year so wow um he's not surprised by anything in there and uh my uh another cousin worked there until this year he's also not surprised by anything my family is they're all like they're all from here they don't and when you say from here do you mean from oh so uh, from, BC? I'm from Cape Breton yes Cape Breton. just for just to let our readers know that uh this is far yeah, no, from no, the oil not, sands uh, yeah not BC uh CB <laughs> Cape Breton uh Cape Breton has long exported workers to places like this to mining areas to manufacturing centers uh to areas that anywhere that it sort of exploited capitalist labor cape breton has always sent labor and so no one is surprised by what happens i was surprised because i was young and naive but later on when you're talking to people about it they're like oh yeah 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 and uh, and you realize that you're part of this pattern that has been going on for a long time. And I mean, people from here used to go to Boston to work as housekeepers or uh, as like dock workers or whatever. They'd go to, they'd go out west on the harvest trains uh, to do the harvests in the prairies. They would go to uh, Ontario to work in the car factories. They would go to do uh, mining in places like Sudbury or Elliott Lake. They would go to uh, uh, Alberta to work in the oil sands. And it's the same sort of stories in all of these places. How did this uh, sort of compare and contrast with them? So you went to art school and then you went back home for a bit and then you went to the oil sands and now you're back home. How does this compare with the sort of the the stories and experiences of other people that you went to art school with? Well, I went to an art school. I didn't go to art school. Uh, I went to, I went, I got a BA. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I uh, one of them went to, went to Fort McMurray with me, Lindsay Bird. She's in the, she's in the book. She, she went and she got a, a journalism degree afterwards. And now she's a reporter for CBC, but mostly uh, my my school Mount Allison it produced a lot of like lawyers it it uh, a lot of us came out with BAs and things and uh, and nobody gets a job with a BA really so everybody has to figure out what to do after that <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I don't know what you have. What do you have? Oh, gosh. Uh, I started out as a scientist and then moved into science video production. And now I'm moving into like social media and digital. And yeah, I heard somewhere that people like switch their careers like six or seven times per like every for like your whole career, which, uh, you know, (laughs) made me feel a little better about my switches, so to speak. But um, yeah, it does, especially with like, you know, the various things that life can throw at you, COVID, et cetera. You know, we never really know what's going to happen. But one thing I really loved about your story was just this theme of resiliency in the way that like you were able to still continue to create comics and like find pieces of sort of uh, ways of expressing yourself and being you despite sort of all of the environment around you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I think for a while, I really lost myself there. There was a while. I would say when I was working in Long Lake, when um, I, I didn't know myself at all. I, I stopped drawing. I don't think I drew anything for like a year. And I, I stopped reading, I stopped doing things that were like myself. And um, I missed myself, I think, but I, I was really sort of I was working 12 days on, two days off, and the shifts were 12 hours long, and the camp was brutal. And that, you know, that was the worst camp. Not all the camps were the same. That camp was bad. And then I I moved to Victoria, which is in the book, and I sort of started putting myself back together. And I do think that making comics helped me so much. Harga Vagrant was a real saving grace. I started making comics and I was working in this place that was so, uh, that took so much in a lot of ways, but I would make these comics that were very silly, but they were very like fun and, and just completely opposite to what I was doing in real life and putting them online and people would respond and they would talk to me like I was myself, like I was my my own person. And I felt like myself. And that was such a gift. Because and I would leave, you know, and I would walk around sight and people would like bark like a dog at me. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, it's a sharp uh, <laughs> contrast. But yeah, no, it's yeah. difficult to, you know, be creative. It's difficult to feel like yourself when you're surrounded by so much that kind of like wears you down and yeah you know that really stifles not just like your creativity but like you as a person and um you know obviously yeah. it's not the same but I haven't been able to like make any videos that are creative based for like four months now because it's just been this creative block yeah but I think that's the the nice thing about your book is that you know the arc the overarching story is one about you know going down into into sort of a dark headspace but then at the same time finding you know, a way to get around that. There's all these different sites that you go to, the different jobs that you find. I was especially touched by like kind of uh, you start out sort of in a job of like giving people specific tools and then realize that working in the office might be like a better fit and then go ahead and you just use you do that. And um, as opposed to kind of getting stuck in like, oh, this is a this is what I know or like this is my habit or whatever. Oh, I couldn't get out of the tool place. I I. I don't know if I make that clear enough, but I, I tried to get out of the tool place, but they wouldn't let me. How'd you end up in the in the office then? I after I I was in the the tool crib itself for like a year 
And then I, I had to leave that job when I went to Victoria. And then when I was coming back, I applied for a a better job and I got it through my friend, Lindsay Bird. Cause she, um, when I, I ended up in the office, when I came back a year later, I, I managed to, to like wiggle into the office. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually that was one of the things that got cut was like explaining these things away, like explaining them clearer. Cause, cause uh, it was all like, at first I had these like emails between Lindsay and I that were um, verbatim basically so that the reader would know exactly what the heck was happening. That, that like I, how I couldn't get out of the tool curve at first and how I got into the office, but those were like, they were like texty emails because mm-hmm. I did not choose to have text blocks in the book at all. It's all dialogue. And, uh, and that was my one way of getting around it. Like letting one way of letting the reader know what was happening by having these emails verbatim that from that were actual from the time, but uh, they were one of the editor decisions when they were going through and cutting pages was to get rid of these emails. Cause they were like, no one's going to read these. They're going to skip right over these. So you may oh. as well just cut them. And like the reader will know what's going on and like talking to you now, I see that like you didn't really, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't like, it's not, it's not like the end of the world that you didn't pick up on that, that I didn't have a choice to leave the tool crib. And um, you know, it's not like it doesn't ruin the book, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Thank you. Forgive my transgression. Um, No worries. Well, like that's it. Like I, I, I thought about those things and I was like, you know, uh, I, I I understand that by taking out this this thing, it you know it might not get it, but but like, does it matter? That's what you got to ask yourself. And because uh, because me as me as the author, I'm like, oh, all these little like things matter. All these little small things matter, but do they? Maybe not. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a perfect segue to my to my last question of uh, like, does it matter? So, what would you say is kind of the the main like mattering point that you're hoping readers walk away with this walk away from this book with, or perhaps understand about you or the the oil sands? The message is one of just humanity, I think, because my story is one of myself and of class, working class. It's a lot of things. I I was never able to sum up the oil sands neatly. So my elevator pitch was never an elevator pitch. It was like, like elevator pitch to the moon. Um, (laughs) So like, I never found that the discussion of the oil sands included a human element. And I never found empathy in a lot of things that people said. And I never found, not never, never is too strong of a word, but in discussions from things from stuff like Me Too, which I actually started this book just before Me Too started, working class women were often left out of those conversations and their work environments. And uh, and those voices are often, you know, you're not going to speak up. And, and there's a lot of reasons not to. And, uh, well, there's a lot to, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, uh, humanity makes, makes a lot of sense. I think just the sheer amount of like various people and the way it's represented and especially representing it as a, uh, 
as a comic, I think the visuals really, really impart a lot in terms of emotion and how the different characters are feeling. Well, thanks. I, I never wanted it just to be my story. It's my memoir, but it's not just my story because I left there and I, I could never shake Fort McMurray. I, I never wanted to go back, but I could never leave it in a lot of ways. And that's not judging people who do stay or, you know, but I, I carry it around with me. And maybe if you read the book, you understand why. Certainly. Well, bringing this podcast uh, a bit more broadly to um, books in general for a second, our actual last question. Uh, do you have any books that you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, my God. Jeez. I just read The Third Person by Emma Grove. That was very good. My my book recommendations are always like the last book I read. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel you because that's the one that's always the most vivid. So whenever I think of book I know, recommendations, I think like, of like gee, this two book books in the last read. like the last like, month. What have I read? <laughs> no, I know. I'm like this book I just read, but I did just read the third person by Emma Grove. It's very good. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our listeners. Listeners, if you have a topic you'd like to discuss or question you have for me, my DMs are open. You can find me on pretty much any platform, YouTube, Insta, Twitter, TikTok, at Notes by Nipa or Feminist Book Club at any of these platforms at Feminist Book Club. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll see you on the next page. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature. I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis.